Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. In Zechariah chapter 2, starting in verse 10 through chapter 4, verse 7. So this particular passage that we're taking a look at is really on the theme from our main section there of Numbers chapter 8, which is talking about raising up the menorah, raising up the menorah, putting it into business as the that which provides light. And if you'll remember from our passages that we saw at the end part of Exodus, uh, heading on into Leviticus, that the role that the menorah was serving as standing across and facing toward what? Bread. The table with the bread of the presence. And on that table was... What bread? Okay, show bread. A, a bread of display, also called the bread of the bread of the presence. Yes, the bread of the presence. So, kind of an interesting play on words there, because it was a present that was presented to the Lord there in the tabernacle to show that the 12 tribes were present before the presence of the Lord. Now you might think, okay, that's just a whole bunch of English plays on words, but it really is key to what we're going to be looking at here today about being present in the presence of the Lord. Uh, the, the key term that we always talk about being present or showing up and are not just clocking in, just biding your time, getting your ticket punched, and thinking that that's actually going to do something. That was the huge problem, as we'll take a look at as we unpack this passage in Zechariah further. That was a huge problem that became a sad legacy of the priesthood of Israel. So, the purpose of raising up the menorah, to raise up the lights, to get them the lights in business was to what? Shine light onto the bread and into everything that was there in that particular section of the tabernacle. What else was in that section of the tabernacle? Bread is right across from it, the, the bread of the presence, the table with the bread of the presence. Ah, the altar of incense was also right before the curtain. So shining a light on the altar of incense. And helpfully from the book of Revelation, we understand what the altar of incense is related to, which is the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the holy ones, the holy ones of God, those, those who care, those who care about the kingdom of God, and those who care we're going through Romans right now. We're just got, getting to the end of chapter 8, and it's revealing there that 
the ones who the Lord calls, the ones who hear his name, respond, and they are delivered out. They're declared not guilty. They're, they're justified and then glorified. So the ones that hear the call become the saints, the holy ones. The ones who hear the call respond, move forward, accept Hey, heaven has covered over your sins, transgressions, and iniquities. Forgotten about them deliberately. And now moves you on into being heaven leaning on you, which is what that idea of glory is, to lend weight to. Kavod, to lend weight to. So heaven lending weight onto the holy ones of the kingdom of God. Not because we're so fantastic, but rather what we read about in the passage here today that makes us fantastic in heaven's eyes. So our passage here in Zechariah chapter 2, so in the context of looking at what the menorah is all about, we see in the historical setting of Zechariah that Zechariah, his name means, you know, the Lord, Yah, is Zakari, my, um, my remembrance, or the Lord remembers is another way to put that. And he descended from the grandson of Edo, as it's mentioned there in the prelude in the first chapter of Zechariah. And Edo was head of a priestly family, so he was a Kohen from the Kohanim, the priesthood. And that family, eventually, we read about them later in Nehemiah chapter 12, that they had returned with those. So they were among that remnant that returned from the exile. There was a whole lot that didn't. But he, his family would eventually become part of it. But he himself, when you kind of look at the timeline, would likely was born in exile. So a very interesting picture of Zechariah himself. The Lord remembers, which is going to become key when we go in here further. So the setting of it, when you see it in Zechariah chapter 1, is the eighth month of the second year of Darvish, or Darius, as we say. And Darius, this particular one, is seen as being Darius I, or also known as the Great Darius the Great. And his reign, uh, standard calendar is uh, 522 to 486 BC. You also see some folk put him um, in a later time frame. But the second temple was finished there in what's thought to be 516. So this particular time frame is likely looking at something in just a couple of years. Or a few years before the finishing of it and a couple years into Darius's reign. Now, there's a couple other Dariuses in history. Darius II, also known as Notus, and Darius III, uh, also known as uh, Codamanus. But they were centuries later in the time frame. Now, interestingly enough, and you'll see that in the, the way that you'll see a lot of Protestant Bibles will order the books, that the book of Haggai and Zechariah are 
together, usually, following each other. And that's not by coincidence. So when you look into the time markers in both of those books, you'll see that, that they're talking about they were, the prophecies were coming to them just within a month of each other. For example, Zechariah there, starting with the eighth month of the second year, you'll see that Haggai was talking about the 24th day of the ninth month in Darius' second year. That's when he ended. The last prophecy was coming to uh, Haggai, or otherwise known as Haggai, which means, you know, my festivals. So you say the Lord is my remembrance, or the Lord remembers, and my festivals. You'll see that both of those things come into play together. The Lord remembers what, and what are his festivals supposed to be remembering? Why are they memorials? Memorials of what? So that we see that the, the fact that both of these, these two prophets are both pegging their prophecies to Darius is quite curious because you see other, um, other prophets don't peg them to particular reigns. It's not common among the other prophets to peg them to particular reigns of, um, you call a pagan king. But one of the things that you see in both of those books is that, yes, Israel is in exile. Yes, there is a empire that is over the top of them. That is not Israel. But yes, God is still in control and still remembers, still remembers Israel and where Israel is to, to bring her back. So also, when you see in Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, you see these two prophets. When the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo, prophesied to the Yehudim who were in Yehuda and Yerushalayim in the, in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel the son of Shelitiel, Shelitiel and Yeshua the son of uh, Yosadak arose and began to rebuild the house which is in Yerushalayim. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So, thus, when you're talking about the role of these two particular prophets, it is in the role of what was going on with the rebuilding of the house of God and the walls of the city. So, when you look back at the book of Zechariah, Zechariah, you will see that it, one simplified way to look at it is perhaps divided into six segments. This is one just possible outline here with the call to repentance in the first six verses, the first verse. Then you get this long section, which is part of what we'll be looking at here today, which covers from chapter 1, verse 7 through chapter 6, verse 8, which is often called the night visions. There's eight of them, eight night visions that come on a particular night. And when you see the time frame of this, they are recognized to have come on the same night. So you think you have dreams. Well, imagine getting these eight dreams, just bam, 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 just one right after the other coming down. 
And then you see, starting in chapter 6, verse 9 through 15, you get this crowning of Yeshua as the high priest. And you see the interesting chapters 7 and 8 of Zechariah talking about fasting and of the future. Then, interestingly enough, chapters 9 through 11 are talking about the coming and the rejection of the Messiah. And then chapters 12 through 14 of the coming and the reception of the Messiah. The reception of the king and the rejection of the king. So when you see, talk about in the, in the, in the Gospels where it says, and Yeshua is telling his students, well, don't you know that the Messiah had to be rejected? Yeah, well, yeah, here you go. Here's some examples of it. Yes, indeed, the prophets said that the, the chosen one had to be rejected and then had to be then accepted. So you see starting out is kind of like a commissioning part of this particular book that in the eighth month of the second year of Daryavish, here recorded in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, starting out this particular passage, the word of the Lord through Zechariah said, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. So here you see, first off, what a key issue that's being addressed, that we may think, oh, it was a slight matter that kicked off the exiles. No, (laughs) the Lord was very angry with the leaders, very angry with the leaders of Israel that, that prompted this particular path to come down. You know, we may think the things that lead up to the, what's known as the fall there with Adam and Chava there in the garden. What's the big deal? Choose one tree, choose the other tree. Why was there such a big condemnation that came down upon billions after them from what we think is not a big deal? Think of the flood. Okay, people were violent. So that was enough to go through and wipe out both people and creatures in the midst of that, that was enough. So we may think these things, and then we've read in times past about what the prelude to the exiles was about. We read about that when we go through the passages in the Torah about the Shemitah and the Yovel. They weren't respecting those because those are about hey, you were oppressed. You were oppressed in the land of bondage. The Lord delivered you out. So thus, every so many years, you will release. You will take the boot off of the neck of the oppressed. You will take care of this because you were released, so you will release people kind of remembers something that 
Yeshua said about forgiveness, if you want to be forgiven, you must forgive. If you do not forgive, then what happens to you? You will not be forgiven. So you see that, yeah, it was a big deal. What led up to the exiles was a huge deal. So when the Lord is saying here, I was very angry, or is it, it's often rendered in, in Hebrew as angry, angry. When you get those words together, it's an amplifier, it's bold and underlined together. Like, you know, kadosh, kadoshim is most holy. Those words are amplifiers together. To, so you get the message, hey, this is a really big deal that the Lord is extremely angry about this. And something also very interesting that, that comes into this particular topic. You may have noticed when you're reading the Bible, especially if we go through the passages in the Torah, and you keep saying, thus says the Lord, you know, and the Lord said, and these sorts of things. We call that attribution. It's the big 50-cent word there, attribution. And in my business, that's one of those things, a hallmarker that, hey, you should trust me when you attribute something to somebody. And the less attribution that shows up in a story or the more spurious the attribution shows up, sources say, experts said, you know, those kinds of who, what, where, what are their, what are their credentials? I have no idea. Some, you know, so thus, when you're seeing these particular things peppered throughout the speech, this is the hallmark of what the prophet is saying. Hey, I'm not just making this stuff up. It's not coming to me in some sort of a, a bad mood or I, I eat something bad and I had a weird dream. No, this is the attribution of it is this is what the Lord is saying. So thus, what should you be able to do with that? Here? But if it says, thus the Lord said, what can you do with that? Compare it to other things that the Lord has said. So that's a part of what I do in the business of journalism is if somebody says this, it's like, really? Did they really say that? Number one, does it sound like something, especially if you know the source, that they would have said before? And you're like, does it jive with what the source has said before? And all the facts that I know about what the source says. If not, ah, either somebody is lying, somebody is um coming up with, with hearsay, this and that and the other, uh, you really should look into it if those are not matching up of what somebody says, hey, you know, the Lord said blah, 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 blah. And it doesn't match what the Lord has said before, what is recorded in the word or something like that. Then it's like, oh, be, be very alarmed. So thus, when you see this introduction coming out, Continuing on in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts proposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. What do we call that? 
confession. They are humbling themselves to say, yeah, we deserved it. And you might remember the prophet Daniel praying something very similar. And it's very strange. It's like, wait a minute. He was a young, he was not in charge. He was hauled off with everybody else into captivity. He wasn't responsible for it. But yes, he is praying when you see him praying. It's like, yeah, it's my fault. My fault. You know, we not shoving the blame off to somebody else. Well, I didn't do it. You know, smite them. But no, hey, have mercy on us because we being a part of that generation. So when we continue on here with the prophet's message that you can see kind of a larger expanded outline of what we're looking at here in this um, eight visions of the night passage that goes into from chapters one into chapter six, that the section we're looking at here is really over the third, fourth, and fifth visions. Because the first two visions, the man in the myrtle trees, the second vision, the four horns and the four craftsmen. Then we're continuing on here with our passage of the man with the measuring line, which is chapter two. Then we got Yeshua, the high priest in chapter three, and then the gold lampstand in chapter four. So digging down into this a little bit more with Zechariah chapter two, with the man with the the measuring line. Now this picture this image the symbol of the measuring line or the measuring reed you'll see it also referred to as that's something to say hey construction or some sort of evaluation some measuring is taking place here you you might have seen some documentaries where they talk about the construction of the pyramids especially the big one the one at uh, giza the largest of them and how its foundation is so unbelievably level and straight. It's like an amazing amount of uh, surveying and work that was done on that to get a line that was so straight across such a long distance. So you have in ancient times, as was today, some common things about measuring lines, measuring reeds, and also surveyor's tools like a transom, which is you're doing line of sight between two points or multiple points to determine where things are so they line up over a long distance. Because if you have, if you're (laughs) trying, uh, a snap line will work over a short distance, but what happens if it gets too long? droop (laughs) so it's uh you might end up with a whole lot more in your length if uh you are not uh taking things at smaller increments so thus you do the read method which read is you just start adding and the guy with the read and you'll see that as it's described there in ezekiel chapter 40 and 47 going through the the city of god with a measuring reed to measure it and you're doing it over uh, imagine what that would entail over a long distance read 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 and then tallying it up over the length of it 
Number one, with the measuring read, what do you have? A standard. You were saying the read has a certain standard, and you are measuring things according to it. That's why you have standards for things, such as like with the metric system, you've got the, the standard kilogram, which is, I can't remember what metal it's made out of, but it's a, it's a mass of metal that is kept in a vacuumed environment so that nothing can happen to it, no uh, corrosion, nothing, because they have said, this is what a kilogram is, and everything is set to this chunk of metal that has been determined to say this is the standard kilogram everything in the world no matter where you've got a scale or anything else they're set to these standard kilograms and everything is put to that so thus when you're saying the measuring read go out and measure it so the city the courts, as you then read in Revelation, Revelation chapters 11 and chapter 21, that the courts and the outer courts are being measured by a standard. To see, we have the, the uh, colloquial phrases that have come up from that. Do you measure up? And then you have one of the, the sobering aspects talking about the exiles that you see talked about in the book of Daniel. You've been weighed in the balances and what? Found wanting. Weighed in the scales and found wanting. That standard weight of heaven has been put on one side and you've been put on the other. How do you measure up to that? Yeah, uh-oh is right. So this, this picture of measuring lines and reads is one of not only the idea of evaluating what's there, but it's also a picture of a construction site. Something is going to happen to this site. You're setting things up for the building, the rebuilding of it. And there's a number of examples in Jeremiah 31, 39, talking about this foretelling of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And of course, Ezekiel 40 and 47, talking about what's commonly called the third temple. And in Revelation 11 and 21, especially at 21, that is of the, called the new Jerusalem, that new Jerusalem that is coming down. Now, one of the things that you see in the measurements of what was built in the rebuilding of Jerusalem is it was smaller to the point that in Ezra chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, it says, hey, those people who were alive before the exile, they saw Solomon's temple. Now they see the rebuild. Ugh. And it's, it says they weep. They weep because they had seen what the former glory of God's house was. And the rebuild was not glorious whatsoever. Not glorious whatsoever. But not coincidentally enough, in Haggai, Haggai chapter 2, is a very interesting prophecy. And we talk about this every year during Hanukkah time, is a prophecy that comes to Haggai, the prophet, in 
on the 24th day of the ninth month. So you saw that Zechariah and Haggai are, are prophesying around the same time periods. And you see that Haggai the prophet is saying that there will be a greater glory that comes to the temple than has ever come to it before. Now, the rebuild, it got the thing up, got it back in business, but it wasn't like the former glory of it until Herod. Then Herod went on a big um, capital campaign and turned the temple into one of the great wonders of the world, one of the wonders of the whole planet, because then you have the Roman Empire dumping cash into it to build it up, to build that what we call the Temple Mount. That was because of what Herod built, this gigantic uh, platform and retaining wall around it, what we say the Western Wall. That's a retaining wall for this platform that was built to hugely expand the uh, borders of it. Uh, yeah, Alex, you have a comment or a question here. That's the, uh, that's, uh, yes. Best craftsmen to help us. Mm -hmm. Second temple, a foreign mm -hmm. king's like, you guys ought to go rebuild that temple. <laughs> go ahead, Daniel. Go ahead down there. And the, the other people down there are teasing them, throwing yes. rocks at them. So, eh, you know, <laughs> they did the best they could. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they, did. Uh, they did. Yeah, they were, people were taunting them. And, yeah, and, yeah. and you, you bring up the very interesting point because the, the lesson of that rebuilding was don't come down to engage these folk. They're going to do what they're going to do, but you just keep your nose onto what you're doing. Keep going forward because the rebuilding, the rebuilding of the wall, the rebuilding of the temple was of the utmost priority. As the old saying go, what? Haters going to hate. So, yes. So this idea of the greater glory coming was something that did happen. Herod thought he was going to have the greater glory, and he heaped it upon the temple. But what did Yeshua say as he was going through? And his students were marveling at the sight of the wonderful artifice that, that Herod had put up. You think these things are fantastic? Well, everything you see here, it's coming down. And it did come down. It came down when the greater glory entered it, but then finally came down physically when the Romans, who had heaped the cash on it, took it down themselves. So a very interesting lesson that, yes, if you uh, let people in that may not be on the same, or as they say, unequally yoked with you, it may end up on the destruction of what it is that you're trying to build. A very interesting parable in that particular tale as well. Now, in this passage of Zechariah 2, verse 10, it says, Behold, I'm coming, and I will dwell in your midst. Well, we're just going through this here in the Torah cycle again, about here the tabernacle is getting ready to start going. In this particular passage, Bahalotecha, is about, hey, 
now you've got the commission set out from the mountain. You've got this mobile mountain, this mobile presence of the Lord, where the Lord is going to put his presence. Move, get going. And the Lord is going to dwell in your midst. All the camps of the tribes around the temple. So you think the people who are sitting in exile, can you imagine the encouragement that would be? Behold, I'm coming and I will dwell in your midst. If you're in a generation that is thinking, you know, first it was Ichavot, the glory is departed. And then we have departed. We're in another country outside of the borders of the land, far away from the place where the Lord said he was going to put his name. Even though you have that legacy of praying toward it, just like the prophet Daniel would do, yet you weren't there, and you weren't able to easily travel there. And if you were to travel there before the rebuilding, what would you find? A wasteland. What is former glory was just gone, was cleaned off. You would have to then rebuild it. So this, you see also as it continues on in Zechariah 2, verse 11, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Ha, well, there you go. There's a, when you're talking about the people who were weeping over the loss of the former glory, to them who had heard the words recorded of Shlomo at the dedication of that first temple, hey, that this is going to be a house of prayer for all nations, as it was later recorded there in Isaiah, that that would be a promise. It would be a house of prayer for all nations again. And then as, as Solomon was praying that, hey, this place, when the foreigner comes, accept him, because what? You have called him to this. Just, just like we're, we're, we're reading here and going through the book of Romans, hey, this is not just of how fantastic we are. We have come to God. And wow, we just go there and pound on the door because we're so worthy. Open up. Uh, no, it's rather the other way around. God calls us and then opens our eyes and puts that sort of spark in our hearts. And then we answer the call. So thus these foreigners who are showing up, they are also answering the call. They have heard that call. They are like Rahab, where they're in a foreign land. They should not be thinking to abandon their gods, their cultural traditions and whatnot. Yet they do. She did. She sided with invaders. She sided with people that shouldn't look like they were a powerful nation at all, yet she did. And so these foreigners, when they hear the call, they go up. But you see that, that picture of, and this is a common thing that you see throughout uh, prophetic scripture, is that picture of on that day, in that day, that's a whole part of that now and not yet aspect of, of Bible prophecy that is, uh, 
it's really kind of frustrating. And it's been so for thousands of years, where thus you end up with a lot of messianic prophecies where you will say, um, many people will say today, well, how could Yeshua be the Messiah? Because it says he must do this. Well, he didn't do that. Well, he did that, but he didn't do this. Well, that's a very common thing throughout the prophets. You would have a restoration of the temple, yet it wasn't what was said to be happening on that day. Well, the, on that day would be something even greater that would be happening on top of it. So when that day comes, what should you be thinking about? What happened very similarly in previous times before that? Because these things build one on another on another. So thus, when you see Yeshua and he stands up in the synagogue and is reading from Isaiah chapter 61, and today it's, it's fulfilled in your hearing. Well, when you read Psalm six, or Isaiah 61, he stopped at the point that it was happening that day. But, quote, that day was what the rest of Psalm or Isaiah 61 is about. And that day is still messianic era time to the future. So a lot of what you see with the God's revealing into the world is what will be now, but also not yet. The things that are happening together. So it, we, we see glimpses of this throughout Scripture. A key one is one of the names of the Messiah, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, which for us in our linear time picture is a non sequitur. It makes no sense. How? Because we think, oh, okay, we got... Uh, we, we can date the, the crucifixion. We get out our star charts and we can date the crucifixion down to the hour and then the day and the month. And it happened then. But no, it says in the scripture, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Okay, get out the star charts again and we can see if we can calculate down to when the beginning was. Well, the issue is, is that was the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth? Yes. Was the lamb slain at a particular point in time? Yes. So that's now and not yet. And it's almost like, you know, the God who was and is and is to come. Almost like that, you might think. Almost. Or fully. Fully like that. So that's when you're seeing that Yeshua is talking and quoting from this passage in Yeshiyahu. Uh, I'm sorry, Larry, did you have a comment or a question? Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry Larry, for uh, derailing your question. Do, do, do you have a... I was wondering when they put up that middle wall, when they knew that it was supposed to be a, a place for all peoples. Yes. And then they, but they put up that middle wall. Yes. When did, when, do you know when that was? Which temple that was? Was that just that Herod? was that was on Herod's temple? 
and that is a part of the restoration that that came in and part of the you could say correction was the overcorrection and that came into a lot of the laws and you see reflect even the the apostle peter that paul had to correct him about was the aspect that yes you had the issue with the people who had brought in the foreign gods in and brought their practices in they had intermarried and just said you know you know you do your thing over here i'll do my thing over here and you know we'll just have a nice happy blended family but the problem is is that the the cultures that were brought in tended to overtake and uh thus subvert the culture and the teachings of the lord and thus you you had a huge problem so thus with the the ezra and nehemiah when you read in there one of the sobering aspects of this was that the instruction okay these intermarriages that you had before with people of a different culture you know, not talking ethnic here because we're, it was a mixed population to begin with we're talking ideology we're talking what is your belief system that's what makes the difference so they're saying these intermarriages that you had where they're still have keeping to their old practices that's that's got to go because you're talking about rebuilding the lifeline for the world you can't just continue on to have this confusion in families anymore of you know like just think and every family is like on mount carmel where you've got two altars competing with each other one devoted to the creator of heaven and earth the other one devoted to the gods of um do what you want yes uh, alex yeah, what I've been reading lately on that uh, Eusebius church history is that, yeah, the Romans, when they were, they would mix it up, and, you know, you can do your Judaism thing, and, you know, and Essenes were around and whatnot, but eventually when they cleared out Jerusalem, that's why they were killing the early Christians and the Jews were gone, because you're going to have to swear to Caesar at this point. Yep. Because the this, this fate of our empire is at stake, and by the way, we do think we are gods. So the, the mix kind of went goes away every time, probably. You know, you started out like, yeah, we'll work yeah. with you, right? Now, eventually, this is our world. Swear on it or you're dead. And, and it, it came to be the point where that quote, swearing on it or proving your allegiance to the, the, the deity of the emperor and the deities of Rome, you know, you had to prove your allegiance. And the, the historical records are of people would actually either get their friends or pay somebody to go to the pagan temple for them to register their name down that they had attended themselves. So thus, the Romans got smart to this, and eventually they had to uh, swear to it themselves, you know, that you are the one you say you are that's going down there. And then you couldn't. Then your wiggle room is suddenly gone. You couldn't just um, kind of wave your certificate, so to speak, saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not practicing the uh, despicable practices of Israel anymore. 
No, I'm not, I'm not doing that. See, I've got my certificate from Rome that says I've been to the temple. See, I, I got my ticket punched. But it got the wiggle room eventually came to no wiggle room whatsoever. So then what do you do? And it ended up Roman history became just like the history of Israel under the Seleucids, where you had the choice. Do you give up your allegiance to God, follow his ways, or do you acquiesce? Do you, as it says there recorded in the books of the Maccabees, remove the marks of circumcision to that particular point? I don't even want to know what that entailed. But the point was that you could pass as someone who had never had any association with Israel or followed the God of Israel before. So it happened during the time of the Maccabees. So it happened during the time of the Romans. So it's happened time and time again. And even it's happening today. I mean, with the point where you know, just in the past week, we've had somebody, a public figure come out you know, proclaim allegiance to the Lord, quote, or I should say, um, like on social media, a Bible verse saying, hey, the practices of our current culture, that's just not acceptable. Gets called on it and then does an about face and says, well, I was wrong and now I need to be re-educated. Re-educated on what? The, the, the teachings of what the Lord said in his words? So, as Sean is often to say, you know, same as it ever was. Yes, it just continues on and on and on. We will face it yet again. What do we see in the book of Revelation about what we call the mark of the beast? We see it there in the prophets as well. Go through the city and mark on the foreheads those who weep and cry for the evil that's being done in the midst of the city, in the midst of Israel in the midst of Yerushalayim. So that mark of God, that it gets marked on. So same as it was before, so it will happen again. That there will come and be a time period where you know, we will say there will be the measuring line, the measuring read, the standard will go out to measure the city, to measure the temple, those who are coming to worship the Lord, to measure see okay what is actually showing up here in this land because god's idea is that this place the city of god the dwelling place of the king the throne gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger not smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller so just like it was before so we will face again what are we going to do when our time to decide comes up? Yeah, our time to stand. Well, that's why that standing comes up so prominently in the book of Revelation. So in, Ze in Zechariah chapter 3, it is talking about Yeshua, the high priest. And you see this, this interesting image of this trial where Yeshua this particular high priest put on trial and the accuser Hasatan 
comes and starts making accusations. We, you don't really get a clear picture of what those accusations are, but you sort of get a picture on what the rebuke is against the, the accuser. So it's very interesting. This kind of should make you think a little bit about the book of Job and what was happening in absentia for Job there when you had the heaven's court and the accuser was then going up. And in that case, what was the accuser saying? Oh, he only follows you because you bless him so richly. Well, you think about Israel's history. Okay, they've been blessed. They've given the land that land was going to produce. And, you know, if you were going to have the, the cycles of the Shemitah every sixth year, you would get a bountiful crop and it would span you over until the eighth year. And then you would be back into the next cycle again and getting your crops again. But just like with the manna, the double portion, you'd be getting the extra portion there in the sixth year to carry you over. The land would be producing a whole lot more. So there's your great benefit. But what if you take that away? Would then Israel curse God? Just like the admonition from Job's wife, hey, curse God and die. Just, just embrace, embrace the agony. Uh, yes, Deborah, you have a, a comment or a question here. What is God's head count? So, you know, uh, not, not every one of them believe, we don't, not all of us believe that that's wrong. Who is, and I thought about this today during study, who, um, what, I mean, how come we're all grouped in? What makes God say, okay, now the people are saying this, when maybe a percentage of them don't feel that way on a particular topic. Does that make sense? Oh, you mean like? Um, yeah, like say, um, we, uh, we don't agree on something, and oh, then God see, groups yeah. us all together and says, okay, I'm going to punish him. But, you know, how does, we all get punished because, you know, the president's well, I mean, saying yeah. this and that, but, think you know, of, there's a majority of, of us that don't feel that way. Think of the prophet Daniel. He suffered along with. So we with, go be prepared to suffer. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and, and see, that's, that's, one of, that's one of the things when you talk about standing. It's, it's not just standing about you in particular, to stand when you yourself are accused, well, that is one aspect of it, but also standing in the midst of that generation. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Christine. Each generation will have to be held accountable. Yes. Yeah, it's a generational issue. Mm-hmm. For us. Praying and obeying. No matter what comes. Mm. Yeah, because that's one of the, and you bring up a very interesting aspect, and a key aspect of prayer is changing God's mind, or is God not changing our mind, but helping to mold us? mold us in the midst of the adversities that come through us, that we discover what it is that we grow through this, because we may have to endure through it. Perseverance, patience, those things that come through 
realizing, you know, did we, in one case, bring it upon ourselves? Maybe not. Maybe it's like Job's case. It's have, we have nothing to do with it. It's just the onslaught of the kingdom of the adversary just looking to wreak havoc on the planet. And we are caught as, quote, collateral damage or as the key target for the fury of the adversary. So there are all kinds of possibilities where that could be, but the, but the key point of that is, is how do you persevere out through it, through it and out to the other side? And that is a lesson that we see throughout the words and in recent history of the people of God. That's something that is part of the development that is the difference between just showing up to a social club once a week or maybe a few times a week and being a part of the family of the creator of heaven and earth. It's one of those things of a part of a family, but a family that the rest of the world doesn't like, doesn't like what the family stands for, doesn't like the family's values, and just looks to take it out on everybody who's a part of the family. And that's what we see from country to country to country. Cutting off the fruit. Cutting off the fruit, cutting off the root. You know, mm. going after our firstborn. Going after the firstborn. So one of those things that we see in this rebuke that is coming from heaven and the accusation, you can see from the rebuke is that one of the accusations is, is should the Kohanim, should the priesthood stay as leaders of Israel? Should Israel itself stay as the priesthood of, of the nations? That royal priesthood nation, should they stay in that role? Because uh, they, they did a face plant there leading up to the exiles. And God was giving them a really bad time out in other countries and had removed their place. So that's the accusation. Should Israel stay in this particular role? Well, that's what we see with the rebuke, but also the promise that even though the glory had departed, and you see that picture foretold, because remember the prophet Ezekiel spanned both the, the near the beginning of the exiles, just in the years before the exiles, and then the years just afterwards. So he spans that transition that happened between them. And one of the things you see in, uh, that's given this picture in Ezekiel 8 through 12 is or 8 through 11, actually, that the glory of God just picks up and moves out. You get this, this vision of the glory departing out and thus the protection with it. But you also have in the book of Ezekiel and in the earlier chapters in Zechariah this promise that the glory would return. So just like what we just have read in our main Torah passage in Numbers chapter 10, it's something that we, we recite at the beginning and end of each Torah readings. 
that, hey, when the cloud goes up, you say, arise, Adonai, and let your enemies be scattered. And then when the cloud is coming back down again, you say, return, Adonai, to the myriad thousands of Israel. So this picture of the Lord picking up, you follow the Lord. And when the Lord says, okay, we're stopping here, you're like, hey, dwell with us. Dwell with us again. We want you to dwell with us. And we saw this with Moshe interceding on the mountain. Hey, if you won't go with us, how can we go? You must travel with us. And that sorrow that Israel was was feeling and expressing that at the prospect that the Lord was not going to travel with them because they just were uh, not wanting to open themselves up to the Lord. So thus, you can really see that this promise of restoration, even after these episodes of Ichavod, or as you see the prophet Daniel say, the abomination of desolation, even after these episodes, the promise of the restoration and the return, uh, should be a good warning that we as believers shouldn't be so quick to claim that, uh, that heaven has replaced Israel with, quote, the church, unquote. Because you see that... Re- the inspiration through the Apostle Paul there in Romans 9 through 11, where he's saying, hey, this blinding of Israel has happened for a reason. It has happened for a reason for that greater message talking about the, the nations will come and be drawn to hear the Lord and drawn to the Lord and respond to that call. So that promise would, would be fulfilled. And then, heaven removed the veil, just like heaven removed the veil for the Apostle Paul. And then he realized, oh, yes, this is a part of the plan. The, the nations are really a part of the plan. And in fact, that's really the whole plan of yeah. what Israel was there to be about, to be a nation of priests, a nation of priests to go between heaven and earth. Yeah. So we we see that also uh, continuing on in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, this change of wardrobe that's going on here. This is one of those pictures. So the accusation coming from the accuser. How could you keep these people in charge of your earthly rescue plan? How could you keep Israel in charge? How can you keep the Kohenim in charge? I mean, look, they just sent the whole thing right off a cliff. They brought this onto themselves. But one of the things in the rebuke in Zechariah 3 verse 4 because I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. And this indeed, we keep coming back to it because it is quoted again and again throughout the apostolic writings is the prophecy of the new covenant. So 
So when it says, when Yeshua was saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, this is what is being enacted. This is what heaven's plan is all about. And just as a reminder from Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31 through 34, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Yehuda, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Mitzrayim, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Hallelujah indeed. So thus you can see it is the now and the not yet. It is the day is coming. It has come. It is coming. And more to come. It has come. It is come. And it will come. That is a picture of, you know, we are dealing with the creator of the heavens and the earth. Time is not the same in the in the kingdom of god as it is here and it's something that we have to just continually be reminded of we see small little glimpses of it you know that whole call of a homer from light to heavy small examples of the things that god has made where clocks run differently than we normally think they do and if they can work differently and run differently on those scales inside of his creation well then how do you think that they run in the realm of the creator of those things so thus you can see that we get small examples that yes time can run differently and does run differently from the way we normally think of things day like a thousand years yes you know, it's one of those things about <laughs> the, the trippy idea of falling into a black hole. I wouldn't recommend falling into a black hole, but uh, that truly your day will become like a thousand years for people outside of it. Actually, your day can become like a million, billions of years for people outside of it. Um, d definitely time runs in a uh, different orders of things and in the realm that god has made so <laughs> wrinkles yes so one of the 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 key things of this change of wardrobe is taken away your iniquity so you see that in the new covenant prophecy the the corresponding passage or you could say the second witness for the jeremiah 31 passage over in ezekiel 36 which is also talking about restoring to the land, but also not just restoring Israel to the land, but also in the process, giving a new heart and putting the spirit of God within you. Because you can muck up the neighborhood just as well as a restored kingdom as it, when you were before. Unless what? 
you change the hearts of the people in the neighborhood. You know what happens when a, when a neighborhood has a whole change of character? What happens? The neighborhood changes. You can have a great neighborhood, but if the character of the people in the neighborhood goes downhill, whether they've got lots of cash or not a lot of cash, their character goes downhill, what happens to the neighborhood? Everything goes. Yes. So it is one of those things where the hearts of the people is the key aspect. And again, the heart, biblically speaking, is the thing where your mind is taking all of these things in, your emotions, all of these aspects, and deciding what to do with it. So when you're talking about, as Paul does on quite a few occasions, of the spirit battling the flesh, well, the flesh is just whatever you want to do, do it. You have, as, as the vernacular says, you have no filter. Whatever your impulse is, you just do it. If you can get away with it, great. And if you're less inclined, then even if you can't get away with it, you still do it. Versus if you have the Spirit of God, you have that aspect like Paul admonishes, you know, take every thought captive and bring it under submission to the law of the Mashiach, the teachings of the Mashiach. You bring all those things under submission. So thus, when you're talking about, you know, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Thus, my will, I have to make that subject to his will. So that is where the key comes in. And thus, when you see, Yeshua also told the parable of those that come into the kingdom of heaven must have wedding clothes. And you see this recorded over in Matthew 22, verses 2 through 14. And over in that passage, you see that parable of the banquet. And these people invited to the banquet. They come in. But then what? Somebody shows up and doesn't have the wedding clothes. Yes. He gets the, he gets the seat in the banquet. And then they're like, they come up and go, hey, uh, why are you here with, with no wedding clothes? Now, you could, if you want to just grab this totally out of context and say, oh, well, you need to clean up your act before you come to the kingdom of God. But that's totally out of context with everything we've just been talking about here. Who gives you the wedding clothes? You see that in the book of Revelation as well. Who gives you the wedding clothes? Who gave Yeshua, the high priest there in Zechariah chapter 3, the new clothes, the, took the dirty clothes off of him? took the iniquity away, took the transgression away, took the sin away. Who was it who did that? Was it the person? That happened before, and then the restoration. Not like, you know, come in with your act all together, looking all spiffy, and then God says, oh, I like that guy, and then invite you in. If that were the case, we'd all would be toast. Yeah, indeed. The prophecy where he says, I'll re, um, change out your clothes and give you white garments. Oh, in Revelation? Yes. 
That's a that's a good question. I will have to look that up in particular. Maybe my second brain over there, or I should say my my, my lifeline will will help me out. Tammy's saving me as Revelation three. Ah. So we'll close things out here with Zechariah chapter four, with this passage of the two olive trees and the one menorah. So you get this this picture of the illustration, and uh, lots of people have done varying, various renderings of it. You just get the picture of you, you basically have the menorah. Um, you can know what a menorah looks like. We got one of them back there on the back wall. So imagine a menorah like that, and then having these two feeders going into it. Because one of the original ideas of the menorah and is, is that it was... Um, one way to look at it is it was drawn up from the base. That was the later design for it. The earlier designs for it was thought that each of the cups on there would be the holders for the oil, and that's what the priests would have to work on keeping those things filled. But regardless which design you're talking about, you've got these feeders that are coming in directly from the source, from the trees. I mean, it's just kind of a, kind of a strange picture because, well, what do you normally have to do with olive trees? Well, they have to first be ripe. Then you have to get them off through various methods. Then you have to prepare them and then press them to actually get the oil out of it. As you've seen that the ancient olive presses that they, they used to have. So you would have to press it to get it out. But this is the kind of the interesting picture of coming directly from the tree, you know, straight from the source, so to speak, and going, uh, yes, uh, Tammy. Uh, yes, uh, Tammy, thank you. Well, I think two points. First of all, I think, yes. the, pro I think the prophecy or the um, reading that Christine might be referring to, it's Revelation um, 7, 9, where it oh, says, seven, I nine. looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one can count from every nation, and all the tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hand. So that might be what you're referring to. Mm. But um, going to Jeff's point here with the menorah and the olive trees, I was reading a little thing from Chabad that I got in the email, and they were talking about this thing with the olive trees, and you're talking about all the prep for the olive trees, you know, the, the, you have to you know, wash them and everything before you squeeze them and all that. And he, the author was making the point that olives are bitter. <laughs> but yes. yet when you, when you press the olives, the resulting olive oil is not bitter. So um, it's uh, the idea of uh, you have the bitterness of exile, but then you, when you're pressed or whatever, then what results is sweet. Mm, interesting. Oh, great. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, Christine, you have a comment or a question? Yes, I did. Thank you, Tammy, for that revelation, uh, that passage in Revelation. The church to the Sardis, um, Yeshua says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not spoiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before the Father and the angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the, church, what the Spirit says, is, says to the churches. Yeah, indeed. 
So yes, thus in the context of the Bible, this, this picture of clean up your act before coming to God, um, not supported at all. Oh, yes, uh, Alex, uh, go ahead, please. Back to what Paul was saying about the churches and seeing the whole church thing. You know, they were, there was a lot of dissent early on, and they always proved it, at least with Eusebius. Well, let's say what John said, because John said the master's lap or the, this early person. So that's all we really have. Beyond that, a church is just a club. You know, your neighborhood, your people, your whatever. And, but it's just a club, no matter which denomination. You can really only go back to that, uh, to, the, to the scripture. You know, so uh, to be a church person for the church's sake, I know Episcopals are like that. That is the church. That's Peter's. God told Jesus said, "You're start." Yeah, that's us. Uh, <laughs> they yes. all say that, you know. But you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There, there's mm -hmm. good in them all. So, and I, I don't. I think uh, that's right. That would upset the good Lord above. We said, you know, they're all bad in that church. <laughs> it's not really. That's not really the case. Indeed. So it's a mixed bag, but it's a club. It's still a club. Just prove it by the scripture. Yeah. As we are doing here, thank you. Mm, you can still belong to your club. You're clubbing. Yes. You clubbed this morning, didn't you? Yeah, but you know, that's that's uh, one of the one of the key aspects between the you could say the the club idea and the the family idea is um, the the allegiance and uh, care. Now, your club can become a family depending on how you approach it. And those people that you're around for long periods of time can be as close as a family. And depending on what your family is like, it could be closer than your family. But if it is just, hey, we get together and we associate, we have some fun and then we leave, then what is it that is actually being accomplished in the world? Because there's lots of other clubs out there that you can join. Indeed. So one of the, the things that you see in this passage of Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, when they're asking, you know, what are these things, these, what is seen in this particular vision? And it says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, and one of the governors there have overseen this restoration, the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple, saying, not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it, mercy, mercy to it, favor, favor to it. So that picture of what the actual rebuilding was and what, how it would be accomplished was just something that would really only happen by the Spirit of God. As it's recorded there in Ezra and Nehemiah, it was tough. They faced a lot of opposition. A lot of people, they had their uh, nimbies of the day. Not in my backyard. Those people did not want that getting rebuilt. They didn't want that culture coming back around. So they actively opposed it. They didn't want to see it being rebuilt. There was a spirit that was behind that. But there was also a spirit that was behind the rebuilding of it to, you know, because when you, when you think of the, 
move of the Spirit, you see it reflected in several of the prophetic books from Daniel to Jeremiah to Ezekiel to now Haggai and Zechariah. You see it reflected in all of these, that this move of the Spirit of God, that because think about what is being rebuilt here. This, you have an empire, and what is being requested is the rebuilding of a place that was a thorn in the side of your predecessors. And if you think about who it is that you're appealing to, this was the one that was involved with the prophecy that took down the previous empire that you now walked in on. Okay, so thus you're, you're talking about the move of the spirit of basically now you can see why Cyrus is reflected and called an anointed one or a Mashiach of a sort because he was anointed to move beyond the normal inclination of an emperor because that's why they moved people around and moved them out of their country was a was to pacify the, the conquered nation because nationalism is a very strong thing and people will fight for your home. They will fight for your home to keep the invaders out. So what did ancient groups do? They just move the people. You, you go in, you conquer them, you move them somewhere else. You spread them out, you scatter them around so there's no, there's no common links between people anymore. You're not in your homeland anymore. After a generation or two, people will forget about your, what you had before and then you'll just be, they'll be happy little taxpayers. And then that'll be the end of it. But then you have the Spirit of God actually move this emperor to say, no, you are going to go rebuild the temple of a deity that at its core says that is the only deity and the king of kings, lord of lords, above all the others. So think about the big ask that's going on here for just someone who is just thinking about power. So thus you can see, not by might, but by my spirit. Yeah, so you can see they're talking about a mountain moving into the sea. Mountains are one of those prophetic symbols of powers that that mountain was moved of Persia, of the Median Empire to say, we are going to actually rebuild the mountain of the Lord. Even though, as we've seen with the tabernacle, that mountain moves. That mountain moves in the midst of the people. Amen. So that's where we'll, we'll end things here today. So one of those things that we, we can see is that this mountain indeed does move with us. And that what happened at Sinai, it does not stay at Sinai. It goes with us. And thus, the ultimate fulfillment of that, and recorded in John chapter 1, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Amen. So that's where we'll end things here today. And next week we'll, be, uh, we'll get a good shellacking or over at shalach to finally get to send out, 
to send out into the wilderness, which when you see the, the, the latter part of Numbers, it is a good description of what happens to Israel as a shellacking because that is the winnowing out of the, that first generation where Israel then gets reborn with the second generation, which then goes into the land. So just as Israel had to be reborn, born again in the wilderness, Bimidbar, so thus we, coming out of our house of bondage, must be reborn in the wilderness before entering the land. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.